This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we talked to RNZ's outgoing head of news, Richard Sutherland, about 30 years in news, during which he's passed through almost every major news broadcaster in this country and headed the outfit that represents their mutual interests. He's one of a bunch of senior leaders who have left the news media lately, with one former one warning that maybe the big jobs might just be getting a bit much. So are they? You know, go and talk to someone in an A&E department at a hospital or go and talk to, I don't know, a firefighter, you know, anyone like that. We all struggle with the workload and it does seem that everything is busier and everything is fast-paced to a degree that it wasn't, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. In the news media business, you are always on when you get to a certain position. We'll also hear how the Women's World Cup has changed the way that big sports events are aired live and free to us these days, but not everyone's keen. I'd rather watch a chicken going round in a rotisserie than watch the NFL. But before all that, concern about crime has prompted a rash of recent political policies to persuade the public and the media that their party can crack it. Hoping, wishing, praying that the first step to solving the problem is acknowledging you have one. But are our media part of the problem too? This week we talked to journalists who were tasked with rethinking coverage of crime and punishment without amping up the public angst about it unnecessarily. Good evening. It is one of the biggest issues facing our generation and now the government's made another move to make our country a climate leader. The goal is for New Zealand to be one of the first in the world to have 100% renewable electricity generation. TVNZ's Simon Dallow last Tuesday with the story that was leading One News at Six that night and he made it sound pretty significant. Now, the fact that it's also a partnership with a huge and hugely controversial US investment fund led RNZ's news at the same time. A fund management company has warned the government it should be conscious of the motivations of the US investment giant it has struck a deal with. And that plan was also a political shot in the upcoming election campaign. But Three's News Hub at Six that night led instead with this. Tēnā tato kato. good evening. National leader Christopher Luxon is not ruling out banning mobile phones in schools. He teased the policy during a school visit in Hamilton. Where he also appeared to stumble on one very simple question, how to spell cat. On Midweek Media Watch this week, our weekly catch-up with Knights, Hayden Donnell took a look at that and how election fever is affecting the news agenda already elsewhere. And he also looked at how the media hounded a mayor's dog out of office in the capital. Midweek Media Watch is on the RNZ website or you'll find it in our podcast feed if you missed it. But that same day on News Talk ZB, last Tuesday... The lead story was different again. Auckland police have arrested a man in relation to a fatal shooting in Point England on Saturday and say more arrests are likely. Well, that development certainly was newsworthy, especially in News Talk ZB's biggest market in the big smoke. But it also led the news bulletin because they know that stories about serious crime really engage the audience. Just 24 hours earlier, News Hub at 6 had kicked off with this. Crime is said to be a major election issue and News Hub can reveal Labour's losing that battle. Despite the continuous stream of announcements to tackle the ram raid problem, our latest News Hub Read Research poll shows a clear majority of Kiwis think the government's failing to get on top of it. And political editor Jenna Lynch summed up the dilemma those exclusive poll numbers gave the Prime Minister. I think the public can have confidence that we acknowledge their concern around things like ram raids and escalation and gang tensions and that we are doing something about it. Hoping, wishing, praying that the first step to solving the problem is acknowledging you have one. But do our media also have a problem that they don't often acknowledge? 
The strong public opinions about crime, which they harvest for news stories, are also shaped by what people see and hear in the media, and they don't often play down the scourge of crime. For instance, earlier this month, News Habit 6 screened this. Auckland cameraman Tim Raythel has been covering overnight breaking news for News Hub for 17 years. He says he's never seen crime as bad as it is now. It looks like things could be ramping up again. Yeah, well, what do I say? It's not surprising. I mean, the last couple of years in Auckland has just been crazy. And cameraman Tim Raythel's video diary was interrupted by reporter Amanda Gillies making this claim. Everyday good Kiwis and the toll, it's huge. It's mental, financial, physical, and it seems there's no sign of it slowing down. Some offences are slowing down, though you wouldn't know it from reports like that one, in which the opposition police spokesperson Mark Mitchell insisted that, in fact, the media aren't making enough of crime. The media are reporting exactly what crime is happening, and by the way, after what you've seen, they're actually underreporting. There's a lot more violent crime and a lot more violence happening in our communities and our cities around the country that's going unreported. Around the same time, the Capital's daily paper The Post said that the current fear of crime is not simply a moral panic, and that thought was echoed at the same time by Heather Duplessy-Allen in The Herald on Sunday. Public frustration is valid, she insisted, and... People, especially in Auckland, seem to be genuinely afraid that the crime they're reading about will walk in through their back door one night. And after listing several recent headline-making offences, Heather Duplessy-Allen added this. If you prefer numbers to anecdotes, data released recently puts in numbers how the public feels about crime. Now here, Heather Duplessy-Allen had in mind the annual police survey of public perceptions and the recent Ipsos Monitor poll, in which 40% of respondents named crime as a top three concern for them. And that was also cited at the time by Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass on Stuff's daily podcast, Newsable. Yeah, well, I mean, the politics of law and order are a mixture of um, evidence and emotion. Um, and I, I think the fact that crime has been has been popping up as a as a consistent um, problem for people, it's not a result of a, of a political beat up. You know, people out there, particularly up in Auckland, um, feel are feeling crime. They feel it's close to them. They feel it is affecting people that uh, that they know. It is what people feel real. Another recent episode of Newsable asked criminologist Trevor Bradley. In the local area, regardless of whether it was a high crime community or not, because they had access to lots of different sources of information, including talking to neighbours and friends and colleagues or whatever, they had a much you know, better appreciation of the kind of level of risks that they were exposed to. Whereas when we asked them about their perceptions of crime in other parts of the country, they were much more inclined to say that, yes, that's a big problem. Mm. Why? Well, because they were relying on national media, essentially. And so their picture of crime was not experiential. It was totally kind of learned or gleaned from the media. So if people's perception of crime, informed by the media, is out of whack with reality, and political parties are in turn responding to that with hastily assembled election policies, what should the media do? Back in 2018, the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group, Te Uepu Hapai Te Ora, chaired by the late Chester Burroughs, asked itself what would achieve the best possible crime and justice reporting. And it hired two senior journalists, David Fisher and Jonathan Milne, to write more than 200 pages on that. Now sadly, their report never saw the light of day, but Media Watch's Hayden Donnell has read it 
and talk to the authors. Picture this, an election is looming and one of the electorate's top concerns is seemingly out of control crime. Pressure groups are hammering the message that offenders are getting off lightly. They've got support from National, which is repeatedly accusing the incumbent Labour government of being soft on crime. Expert evidence-based analysis of criminal justice is increasingly drowned out in the media by a clamour for more punitive penal measures. On the back foot and losing the public debate, Labour starts talking up legislative changes to lengthen sentences and increase penalties for the types of crimes receiving the most publicity. I'm talking, of course, about the 2002 general election, when the Sensible Sentencing Trust and National Party leader Bill English spearheaded a tough-on-crime narrative following a number of high-profile murders. If all that sounds familiar, it's because in the justice debate, history repeats and everything old becomes new again. We've been having many of these same discussions for decades, from the 1990 election where the National Party campaigned on a return to a decent society to the upcoming one in October. All that history is spelled out in detail in a 227-page report titled Developing Good Practice in Criminal Justice and Journalism. It was commissioned in 2018 by the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group to Uepu Hapai Eta Order and was written by Jonathan Milne, the current editor of Newsroom Pro and former editor of the Sunday Star Times, and David Fisher, a senior journalist at the New Zealand Herald and former chief reporter at the Herald on Sunday. The report delivers a series of recommendations for better practice on crime and justice reporting in the hope that news organisations might avoid some of the iffy practices of the past. It calls for reporters to include context and facts about crime to explain the why rather than just the what and the how. In the author's eyes, that means doing sometimes difficult stuff like including the voices of offenders in the breadth of crime coverage. Other recommendations include a call to give reporters access to a toolkit of crime statistics and research summaries, ensuring more diversity in our newsrooms, and trying to make coverage of violent crime more proportionate to the frequency with which it actually occurs. It even gets into the nitty-gritty of reporting terminology, urging journalists to avoid crime clichés such as blood-spattered, slaughter or outrage where possible. All these things might have helped foster a more nuanced, informed public debate ahead of our current election, but the report was never released by the Ministry of Justice and only found its way into the hands of Media Watch through unofficial channels. That seems a shame. I asked one of the report's authors, Jonathan Milne, and the person who commissioned it, University of Canterbury Senior Lecturer and Director of Criminal Justice, Dr Jared Gilbert, to explain its contents and how they might be applied during election season. Oh, it's remarkable. In fact, I did another piece of research just uh, recently, just last year actually, where I looked at some gang laws that were produced before the uh, election in the mid-1990s, 1996, which was the first MMP election. So National was in um, power, Labour in opposition. Labour pressures the government that is initially resistant Um, but then folds and it all becomes about um, how tough we can get. And we are seeing that 
it details 2002 as well, which seems almost like an identical dynamic where uh, you have pressure on tough on crime stuff. You have Bill English from the National Party attending sensible sentencing trust events and Labour defending itself and proposing some tough on crime legislation. So that was very similar too. Yeah, most certainly. But but actually, you know, back then, the Sensible Sentencing Trust was the, the second or third paragraph in every single crime and justice article saying um, crack down. And so we have had some reprieve from this. And there was some hope that there may be a consensus, actually driven in, in, in part by Bill English, if you remember, was talking about prisons being a, a moral and fiscal failure. Um, but that void hasn't been particularly well Filled, I would argue. And so we've seen the politicians revert to kind. And the reason for that, of course, on the hustings is that it, 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 it proves to be very successful. The public does respond to it. Because this, this report, Jonathan, was actually written in a time of relative peace and it was in the middle of what Jared talks about. If we look back to 1992, that was actually the peak of our reported crime figures. We had 1,322 um, crimes per 10,000 people back then. It's not much more than half of that now, but you wouldn't know it from the peaks and troughs in public debate. And I think you can see the 96 election, you can see the 2002 election, you can see the 2011 election, and the way we're going, the 2023 election, spikes in particular crimes before, especially youth crimes. Uh, When I was editor of the Sunday Star Times, I remember we were reporting week after week youth car chases, and they'd film themselves on YouTube and for a while there, we thought this was an escalating problem that that you know the New Zealand and public policy makers couldn't see a way out of. But you know what? It just kind of the teenagers just kind of moved on. They just kind of lost enthusiasm for it. There were some uh, policing solutions, but largely they just moved on to new things. I don't want to downplay ram raids at all because if you're a jewellery store owner or a dairy owner, these are traumatic and brutal and scary. But that they are a spike rather than a permanent development in in New Zealand law and order. What is it about this kind of tough-on-crime catch cry that's so irresistible to our politicians and to large segments of the media? Because it works. Um, Politically, it is incredibly effective. But the more complex solutions um, take a hell of a lot more explanation, and so they don't get the cut through in the media. Is there a feedback loop that develops as well? I'm looking at the role of the media. So there's something like ram raids that spikes, it gets media coverage, crime coverage increases, people get more afraid of crime, they click on crime stories, more crime stories are provided, and it kind of escalates like that? Yeah, look, without question. And, and I mean, dishonesty offences by far, by quantity, most significant crimes in New Zealand. But th- those aren't the ones that are reported, of course. The ones that are reported are the most sensational um, and so we get these low-frequency crimes that are reported in incredibly high frequency. And so it's no surprise that people have the perception that things are going to hell in a handbasket. In fact, we can see that through surveys that have been done of the public, that when asked uh, which way are crime rates trending, the public always overestimates the amount of crime. But interestingly, if you ask them about crime in their own community that they know that they that they can sort of see and experience, um, they tend to be far more accurate in other places, and because they learn about other places, of course, through the media. So there is an issue here, um, without question. And this is where I think the role of the media is critically important, and um, 
and I and my colleagues really need to act responsibly. Pretty much every media organisation I know has written into its core principles that we will you know, work together to try and contribute constructively to our communities. And this is a real chance for us to do so. The impact of crime is devastating on the victims, on the communities, um, uh, the communities of the offenders, um, often, often the same communities. But the impact of living in fear of crime can be harmful as well. I think the media has a really important role to play in putting this in perspective. We need to be explaining that clearly. And Hayden, you talked earlier about um, this report being written in a sort of a lull between elections, between law and order panics. Those are opportunities for us to have these discussions in the media, to take it a bit slower, look at the data, to look at the evidence, to not be driven by the latest crime, the latest scare. But, for instance, last night, two people were shot on Queen Street. Pretty shocking event. You're, of course, going to cover it if you're the media. The media isn't going to cover every domestic violence event. They are going to cover the Queen Street shootings. How do you get around the distorting effect that that has on people? David Fisher and I, they, um, uh, when we wrote this report, we've suggested uh, that media organisations, with the support from um, justice agencies, put together a bit of a toolkit to support. If you're the late-night reporter um, in a daily media organisation, you need to know how big a problem is violence. Is this a problematic area where, uh, where it's happening? Is it a gang issue? We can enable them to do a better job and not blow stuff out of proportion. I mean, I'd spend my life studying this stuff, and it's sometimes hard for me to put it into context because sometimes the data itself can be misleading. So if you look at domestic violence, which, frankly, I would argue is the, is the, the most significant issue facing New Zealand, really, those data are trending up and have been for, for many, many, many years. Those data don't suggest that the rates of domestic violence are increasing. It actually shows that we're just taking it far more seriously than we once did. So even there where you've got the data um, and the trend is clear, it's actually not representing what's occurring. And so you need to find some clean data sets that aren't affected by changes to attitudes or changes to policing. And the murder rate is, a, is an incredibly good one for that because the definition doesn't change over time. All murders are reported. Um, and what we can see there is really clear decreases over time since the late 80s or the early 1990s. There would be very, very few people in the country that would appreciate that fact. Providing context can be perceived as sticking up for offenders or minimising the pain suffered by victims. I don't think that context diminishes victims at all, and I don't think anybody would want to do that. Yeah, I just think it, it adds a greater clarity to the to the overall picture. But you do raise a good point there Hayden and um, if I come to one of the um, comments we made in our report we suggested corrections needs to open up greater access and trust journalists more to talk to people involved in the um, corrective um, process including inmates, including prisoners and people on, um, on parole or on bail or on home detention then the responsibility for us as journalists is to tell their stories fully and yes you're right Hayden that may seem like we're giving them a platform um, at the expense of victims. We should be telling the victims' stories, and I think we do, but we should also be telling the offenders' stories, and we should be following them through and where they are rehabilitating. Because at present, um, the public perception, I think, is that um, if we just chuck people in, in prison out of sight and out of mind, we don't have to think about them anymore. 
Have we done an adequate job in the media, particularly this election, in communicating that complexity, the complexity of this topic? No, we have not. And Jonathan was um, touched on this. That Look, I work with a huge number of offenders, um, particularly through um, court reports and the like, getting backgrounds of these people. Uh, the backgrounds are such that they would make make most people feel rather queasy um, because they, these these people have had unbelievably terrible upbringings of violence, um, of neglect. As as kids, we would see them as victims, and but but when they offend, um, then they suddenly just become offenders, and we see them solely in those terms. Now that is not for one second apologising for the behaviour, because sometimes that's uh, horrific in itself, of course. But unless we understand where these people are coming from and those drivers of crime, um, then we will never get the crux of this issue because we have to tackle those. Now, we need to understand um, and portray in the media the backgrounds of some of these offenders to understand where the hell they're coming from. And, Jared, you highlight a good point there, but you maybe if we could develop a greater degree of trust between media, justice officials, courts officials, corrections officials, police, if we can develop that uh, trust. If media had access to some of those reports, and I think of, like, for instance, the cultural reports into sentencing that we've heard, so, for sentencing that we've heard so much about over the last few years, if media had greater access to uniform and relevant information that helped explain offending, that helped um, um, explain sentencing, we could do a better job. And that is one of the points that David Fisher and I make in our, our report, that this is a two-way street. We also need the um, institutions of law and order to come to the party as well. Are they not coming to the party? There's been a long-standing challenge of um, uh, getting access um, to um, prisoners and those inside the correction system. I'll, I'll give you an example. Journalists are constantly grappling with suppression orders. But the courts can't or won't tell us whether somebody's got name suppression or not. It's that kind of simple, uniform information that we need to do a better job. I was listening to a broadcast comment a little while ago, and the broadcaster was criticising the former Justice Minister, Kerry Allen, um, who had held up a chart in Parliament showing declining crime figures. And the broadcaster said, don't throw numbers at us, you're disrespecting the the pain, the fear that people are suffering from crime. Well, I don't think that's the right response. Responding to emotion only heightens fear, and that's damaging to people as well. There's a section in the report detailing all the cliched words we use about crime, like horrific, tragic, blood-spattered, slaughter, outrage, and it urges journalists to find other terms if these ones aren't actually accurate. Now, why do you think that's important? What I'd say first is we wrote this report three years ago now. Things have actually improved. I think New Zealand's media has calmed down a little bit. I think we're um, a little bit less prone to the shouty reporting of crime. Uh, And I think I could speak for David Fisher as well. The two of us who reported on crime and Sunday papers and, you know, and sometimes ways we that now we wouldn't be very proud of. We've made some of these mistakes. We're talking from experience. Why do you think you wouldn't be proud of some of the stuff you or David Fisher did in your roles in the past? Well, I better not speak for David anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, uh, speaking for myself, I think some of us probably subscribed, and I'm talking 20, 25 years ago now, um, to that terrible old mantra, if it bleeds, it leads. We knew that I think we didn't appreciate at the time 
that we were actually making it feel closer to home? We have a tremendous amount of crime coverage. So around 20% of all articles are related somehow to crime and justice. Well, that is a... Cause unless 31% you're in yourself, the report says in 2016... Um, but well, there you go. Um, nobody's lives are dominated to that degree by crime, right? Um, and so it, it probably is overreported. The, the media environment is difficult because media do need clicks, right? So you've got your, your, your battling against that as well. But then you, we also tend to have this tendency to report a tremendous amount of um, international crime as well, which I think just adds another layer to this. One thing this report covers is the overrepresentation of Māori in crime figures and uh, how to cover uh, that. To what extent does the lack of diversity in our newsrooms and our lack of connection to poorer, often Māori communities contribute to some inadequacies in our crime coverage? Yeah, this is something we really struggled with, Hayden. How do you report that without stigmatising Māori, without encouraging the public to think that Māori are more likely to be criminal, that they're more likely to be the problem. Part of the answer is employing more Māori journalists who understand te ao Māori better because we're not very good at it. We've got a lot of Pākehā reporters in our newsrooms. We've got a lot of Pākehā leadership in our newsrooms. We all know we need to do better if we're going to actually um, report um, and offer insights um, into all our communities better. You actually, in the report, suggest uh, a separate work stream developed exploring an ethics of journalism grounded in a New Zealand context. This is actually by Aaron Smale. Uh, I think that he suggests that you could include that in Tamangai Paho's Māori media sector shift review, and they've actually completed that review now, did it take that suggestion into account? Yeah, Aaron Smell is a colleague of mine at Newsroom. He's a very experienced Māori journalist. Uh, he's done a lot of work around um, contributors to criminal offending and um, pipeline, um, uh, intergenerational pipeline, That's um, and, and how we can get out of that. Um, he has a number of suggestions. Um, some of them, as I said, are around um, greater diversity in our um, newsrooms. But also just not writing for an audience that we assume is sort of middle class and Pakia, which, to be blunt, a lot of our media organisations do. We need to tell stories that are relevant to a wider range of communities, not just tell stories that we think newspaper buyers in Remuera or Kandala want to read. That's a good note to end it on. Thank you very much, Jonathan and Jared. That was Jonathan Milne, the editor of the online news service for subscribers Newsroom Pro, and Dr Jared Gilbert, an expert in crime and justice, who's the director of the consultancy Independent Research Solutions and a sociologist at the University of Canterbury and a columnist for the New Zealand Herald. Dr Gilbert was also a member of the Safe and Effective Justice Advisory Group and back in 2018 he commissioned that report written by Jonathan Milne and New Zealand Herald senior reporter David Fisher. The report's called Developing Good Practice in Criminal Justice and Journalism but so far it hasn't been published by the Ministry of Justice. And you can hear more of what they had to tell Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about the reporting of crime and punishment in New Zealand in the extended version of this item that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed.
Recently, the former editor of the New Zealand Herald, Gavin Ellis, asked a rather bleak question in his weekly blog, Nightly News. Have years of low pay, low esteem and layoffs taken such a toll on journalists that they have become incapable of viewing the world as anything but a grim, dark place? And in his weekly commentary last week, Gavin Ellis wondered about the toll that big media jobs had taken on those who had decided to quit them lately. At the Herald, long-serving chief editor Shane Curry had stepped aside recently to write about the media instead as an editor-at-large, and Mariana Alexander, head of premium content at the Herald's publisher NZME, resigned last month to take a break with her family. TVNZ's chief executive Simon Power left at the end of June, and senior producer Sam Robertson, in charge of TVNZ's breakfast show for years, also resigned recently. And also, in June, the head of news at MediaWorks, Dallas Gurney, left the media business entirely, and along with his partner, bought the shop in the Northland beach town of Fananaki for a complete change of scene. And Gavin Ellis saw a trend in this that he said shouldn't be ignored. Some media executives have given so much of their lives to the job that they have had an epiphany and want some of that life back. Richard Sutherland left RNZ recently after almost five years as its head of news. Richard was also the chair of the outfit that represents the mutual interests of our news media, the Media Freedom Committee. So, why quit now? Richard, looking back, uh, Telecom Extra, ZB, Sky, TV3, uh, then News Hub as it became, uh, and RNZ in the past, what, quarter century or so, maybe, maybe even longer than that. Are you leaving now just because... You've filled the bingo card and you've got the set. <laughs> I haven't got Fakata Marty on my uh, bingo card sorted out yet, but maybe there's still time. Uh, no, look, it's uh, it's just time for a change. You know, you get to a certain point in your life and you think, okay, well, my faculties are reasonably intact and my knees are still good, so uh, now is a good time to go and do some fun things. I got to the start of this year and thought, okay, well, there are a couple of things I want to get done and so what, what were those specific things well i wanted to um, help the team get the morning report refresh done and the other thing that um i was very keen on getting over the line was the rnz asia unit that's been a project that we've been working on here for the last two or three years just trying to work out a what it would look like and b how we would fund it we've got it over the line and so now is as good a time as any to wander off into the wilderness for a bit. Okay. Well, news organisations, particularly commercial ones, where you've worked for, I guess, most of your time, people have often, you know, voiced a lot of fears that big news organisations could go under. All these media organisations still going, uh, even if they're uh, perhaps not as profitable as they once were. Um, Do you have the feeling now that things have stabilised? I think it's a fragile resilience at the moment. But I, I, I hark back to the very, very dark ages of 1990, 1991 when I started my journalism career and I think that I graduated into a market where very few people actually could get jobs because the media industry at that time was having one of its regular cyclical downturns. So I feel like the narrative running through my career has been that the media industry is always in some sort of trouble. The commercial side is challenged, but there's always a challenge. Certainly it's been unprecedented in the last few years with the arrival of the Googles and the Facebooks who are just hoovering up the ad revenue that would normally have flown to the newspapers in the, in the good old days and, and the free-to-air television channels. These are troubled times, but, you know, when newspapers started back in the whenever 16th, 17th century, they probably didn't know what their, what their business model was going to be like, and they managed to work something out. And so I'm cautiously optimistic that there'll always be some sort of commercial media 
I like that reaching back to the sort of end of the end of the dark ages yes. and the beginning of the Renaissance for uh, hope for the business model. Yes. Uh, Gavin Ellis, a former editor in chief of the Herald, uh, who's been around a long time, he was looking at this saying there's a lot of senior editors moving around or, or leaving, and, and named yourself as one of them at this particular moment. He was saying there's something going on here. Maybe the pressures of the job, the endless deadlines, the fact hundreds of emails a day. It isn't the job that it used to be and that it's wearing people out and people, you know, want their life back. And if, if so, are there a lot of senior editors leaving right now and there's going to have to be a kind of refreshing of the ranks at, that, at this top level? Oh, look, I, I think any industry goes through periods when a lot of people leave and a lot of people step up. And I don't think that there's anything special about the news media in terms of the pressures and the workload um, you know, go and talk to someone in an A&E department at a hospital or go and talk to, I don't know, a firefighter, you know, anyone like that. We all, we, all, we all struggle with the workload. And it does seem that everything is busier and everything is fast-paced to a degree that it wasn't, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but certainly in, in the news media business, you are always on when you get to a certain position on the editorial ladder. For a lot of people in these senior roles. You know, we started off as journalists. We didn't really come into journalism to manage people. We came in to tell great stories. And some of us have failed upwards to, to get to where we are. Uh, you know, it is quite a relentless job. You are always on. Uh, is that a symptom of how modern media works at the level of commentary, writing? Everything is enormous when there's something that really takes off, particularly political stuff that's yeah, still well covered. I think, I think the thing that's changed most over the last sort of 20 to 30 years is the amount of commentary, opinion, analysis that gets thrown at any story these days. Back in the 90s, it would be a straight news story and there might be a sternly worded editorial in the Dominion Post uh, about ministerial um, hijinks and that would be it. But these days there seems to be a lot more appetite from the audience to consume the commentary and the opinion piece and the analysis piece. There are a lot more people pumping out a lot more stuff. One thing that has changed, back in the day, if we can put it like that, public money went to the public broadcasters. That was the purpose. They had nothing much to do with you know, privately owned media companies. Now that's not the case with the local democracy reporting service, which pays local papers effectively to employ or news outlets to employ reporters. We've had the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which has now come to an end, but for three years has put over $55 million or so into the media. Do you think that's helped the spreading of public money around media? Because you've worked at the kind of commercial benef- uh, outfits that have benefited from that. I think it has helped to a degree, but I don't buy into the narrative that some people push that somehow it means that the companies that accept this money are bought by the government. I just don't buy that at all because I know what journalists are like. But I don't think that you can look to that money and go, this is what saved the commercial news industry from collapse. I'm sure it's been worthwhile. I'm sure it's helped. And it's helped deliver some great outcomes for the audience as well, which is what public money invested in the media should always aim to do. But whether it's something that should go on indefinitely, I don't know. I mean, New Zealand on air still has a pot of money to spend on on some ventures. So I don't think you're going to see a complete withdrawal of public funding of good news outcomes in the commercial media. Um, but certainly with the funding boost that Radio New Zealand or RNZ has received in the last budget, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more attention on this organisation to deliver 
some of those things. Right now would be a really interesting time to be leaving if you were if the government had got its way and RNZ and TVNZ had been merged, mashed together, or yeah, a new entity created. The suspicion is that TVNZ never really wanted it and their management didn't go that far uh, to make it happen. From your point of view for RNZ, now that's not happening, do you think that it's a missed opportunity or has RNZ effectively dodged a bullet because it wasn't entirely clear what this new outfit would have been or would have provided? You know, right throughout my career, you know, whoever the shareholder of the organisation I've worked for has, you know, if that shareholder decides to do one thing, then okay, we'll go and do that one thing until you tell us to stop doing it. Do you and think it would have been good for RNZ News, though, if it had happened? I think there would have been opportunities for a bigger news operation that we may not have seen had we not get, got the funding boost afterwards. We were quite financially stretched prior to the merger um, because we were delivering on a lot of things that we were told by the government keep delivering to the charter and to the statement of expectations, etc. So I think it's up to RNZ to take the extra money and deliver the outcomes that the public and the audience needs. We've had a different hat in recent times as well, uh, the Media Freedom Committee, uh, which represents the mutual interests of New Zealand's um, main news organisations across different uh, media. Does our media need to do a better job of representing their mutual interests for things like where legislation affects them? Often... The Media Freedom Committee hasn't, for just for one example, put in a submission on whistleblowing legislation, which we probably yeah. should have done. Is that something we need to up our game on? There are a lot of senior editorial leaders on the Media Freedom Committee, but we are all really busy. And I guess you know that comes back to your original comment about you know are we all suffering from burnout and, and stress? Well, there's only a certain amount of brain space you can put on the various things that you've got to do. So I think that yeah, there have been missed opportunities. I think that the industry needs to do a better job of collaborating on on a few things. And I think that the commercial pressures are starting to focus the minds of of people on the need for cooperation and collaboration. This is what the minister's been saying after the non-merger, after it didn't happen, saying, I still want to see this cooperation between organisations, particularly talking about the mm. state-owned ones, RNZ and TVNZ. But really, unless someone at the very top level, you know, makes that happen. There really isn't an instinct to collaborate and, and join up in those ways, is there? No, but but when the money runs out, that will focus people's minds, basically. And I think quite apart from the money side of things, I think that as an industry, we've done a pretty bad job of selling ourselves to, to the audience as, and, and also um, and, and to potential journalists. You know, we've spent the last 10, 15, 20-odd years going, oh, we are so financially stuffed Things are so grim, and things have been grim, but we've still managed to keep afloat, you know. Uh, and to your point earlier, you know, most of the major organisations that were here 20 years ago are still here in some way, shape or form. And we haven't done a good job of going, this is a great, vibrant industry, you can have a lot of fun in it. Well, what we've done, I think, just by highlighting some of the challenges, well, I think we haven't done a good enough job of highlighting some of the opportunities as well. We are going to have to cooperate and collaborate more as an industry. Politics is still pretty intensely covered. What are other areas you think where we have dropped off, things that where we've dropped the ball or just don't get the scrutiny that they ought to have and are important? Look, I think regionally, had I been staying on at RNZ, I would have pushed for more regional. There is such a gap there, I think, particularly as the commercials have retreated to their metropolitan cause, they have um, left not news deserts, but certainly 
new savannas? I don't know. I'm groping for a term <laughs> which, here. Which... Sort of, well, like one yeah. example could be, like, say, Gisborne Tairawhiti. So RNZ didn't have a reporter there. Um, the papers were, wasn't part of the stuff or NZME mm. Empire. They had the independently owned local paper. It's a really important place, big population, um, important for Māori issues as well. Not terribly well covered by... National media. No, and I think I think the issue is that if you look across the country, most towns have some sort of media presence, whether it's a local community paper, whether it's um, a, a bureau from a bigger organisation. We need more regional reporters because if you're the only reporter in that town working for that community newspaper, you're only going to be able to tell a certain number of stories. You know, we still have plenty of media companies in the regions. But do they have as many reporters as they did, say, 10 years ago or even five years ago? No. The gap probably for RNZ is to get more people into the regions and enable more of those stories to be told, both reflecting to their own communities but to the wider to the wider country. You know, it's really important as a society that I, as someone who lives in Auckland, can find out what's happening in Vicargal as an Aucklander. That, that sort of reporting helps weave the country together Without that sort of reporting and without the people on the ground to do that reporting, you lose that. And seeing finally, seeing as you mentioned you've been in it since, what, the early 90s, one of the things that weirdly hasn't changed when you look at it, like um, at the moment there's this, the oversight of, of media, right, the regulation, you know, mm. we've still got these pre-internet regulators for broadcasting, for, for print, so-called legacy print media, for advertising, all of that, that's all still TVNZ, RNZ, RNZ, non-commercial TVNZ, mm. a state-owned broadcast. New Zealand on air having the lion's share of the money for programming. So all of that stuff is the same in the early 90s. It was all set then, and it's mm. still in existence. Are you kind of disappointed that this sort of superstructure, the way New Zealand does media and over and the oversight of it, is all kind of still the same as it was in the early 90s? I guess it speaks to just how robust the structures are. They're still working. I don't know that there's perhaps the overwhelming need for structural change that perhaps policymakers seem to think there is. I think that the current structures that we have in terms of uh, self-regulation and also uh, um, official oversight from quasi-judicial bodies such as the the Media Council and, and the BSA, I think they are sufficient for what they need to do. Are you going to be coming back in some capacity in the future? Or if you're not, are you going to be one of those people that will pop up with things to say? I will be keeping my powder dry. I I don't intend to uh, chip in from the sidelines. I think I prefer to leave the people who are on the field to um, do the playing. And as to what I'm doing next, I really honestly have no idea. And for the first time in 30-odd years, I can say that. And there is a certain lightness to being able to say that. It was Richard Sutherland who left RNZ recently after nearly five years as its head of news, following about 25 years in which he's worked at almost every significant broadcast news operation in New Zealand. And Richard was also the chair of the outfit that represents the mutual interests of our news media, the Media Freedom Committee. And finally, this weekend here on Media Watch, after initial fears the Kiwi public wasn't all that bothered by the upcoming FIFA Women's World Cup, it turns out the average attendances have been higher than the last one in France. And next weekend, when the tournament comes to a climax, we'll look at how it's all played out in the media here this past month. And one of the interesting things about that was all the options for viewers these days. 
Paying customers of Sky have been able to see every game live, while some of the best ones, including the Football Ferns games, have been also live and free-to-air on Sky-owned Prime TV. And Sky's coverage of selected games has also been streamed live on stuff.co.nz. Pretty handy if you're on the move. And this week, Sky and Stuff announced they're teaming up once again in the same way for the Rugby World Cup kicking off in France next month. Now all this is a far cry from 10 years ago when Sky took Stuff's forerunner Fairfax Media to court for posting mere snippets of the action from the Olympics. Now in further free-to-stream sports news, TVNZ announced this week it will soon be showing selected American football games from the NFL live online on TVNZ+. Though one guy texted News Talk ZB last Wednesday to say he wasn't all that keen. He says, hi guys, I'd rather watch a chicken going round in a rotisserie than watch the NFL. And listener Baz had another objection. Free to wear? Not really, is it? Your tax money to our national broadcaster is paying for it, whether you want to watch it. Now ZB's afternoon host told him Baz had a point there, but then Bruce called in to say, no he didn't. TVNZ is not government funded. It has about $330 million of revenue. It's almost entirely commercially funded for advertisers. The only money it gets from the government, i.e. the taxpayer, is if it applies to the uh, NZ On Air to, to uh, create certain programs. But anyone can apply to NZ On Air for that. The only other money it gets from the government is the journalism fund, and it gets a minuscule amount of that, mm. and none of which is used for TVNZ um, uh, news. Quite right. And while he was at it, Bruce put the hosts, James and Tyler, right on this as well. It's still a state-owned enterprise, isn't it? No, well, it's actually not, actually. It's a crown-owned company. <laughs> Trust me, I know. And if you read the annual report, it's on the website. It's all there. The taxpayer is not paying anything for TVNZ+. Plus. Th- thank you, Bruce. Know. Thank you, Bruce, for putting us in our place and uh, providing some very important information. Well done to Bruce, Media Watch's Talkback Caller of the Week. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch during nights. And then back again at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.